Welcome to Leaders of the West, a podcast for innovators and changemakers. I'm your host, Jesse Jarvis, the founder of Of the West, and I'm sitting down with agriculturalists, entrepreneurs, executives, and everyone in between with the goal of digging into the strategies, mindsets, and lessons that have been crucial to the success of ag and Western. Whether you're carrying on the next generation of your family's operation, starting something from scratch, or determined to climb up the leadership ladder, we're going to inspire you to continue to dream big, growing not just you, but the future of agriculture and Western as a whole. Let's go. I am so excited to have you guys back for this week's episode of Leaders of the West. Today, we are sitting down with Tyler Froberg. He is a fifth-generation farmer behind Froberg Farms with his family. He is an Army veteran, an ag educator, and if his name sounds a little bit familiar, it's because he has a very robust and highly engaged social following. You can find him at Farmer Froberg, where he does a really good job of helping to connect and create conversations between consumers and farmers like himself. I can't wait to hear what Tyler has for you guys. We're going to talk about the diversity of their ag operation and also how he does such a great job at creating connection and conversation online. So let's get to it. Tyler, thank you so much for hanging out with us today. You guys focus on a diverse range of fruits and vegetables. You guys also have an agritourism component of your operation that we're going to talk about. You have a well-known personal brand. In your words, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and Froberg's Farm? So, of course, I am Tyler Froberg, known as Farmer Froberg on the old World Wide Web and the various applications that can be downloaded. Um, And I am with Froberg's Farm right here in Alvin, Texas. We are a 87-year-old farm. We raise diversified fruits, vegetables. And we have an agritourism component, as you said. And so those various fruits and vegetables include everything from blackberries and strawberries to mustard greens and turnip greens. We are in the South. And of course, uh, corn maize and cut your own Christmas trees. That is amazing. So 87 years ago, have you guys always been on the fruit and vegetable side of things? Yeah. So that's like a whole story in itself. And our farm, our farm's history actually goes beyond that 87 years because um, my great-great-grandfather and his son, my great-grandfather, migrated from Germany in 1891. They landed in Galveston off the, on the coast of Texas and settled right here in Alvin. And they fought, their first field was uh, where the Alvin Community College is today. I don't know how many people from Alvin, Texas are listening right now, but if you are from Alvin, you know exactly where I'm talking about. And then they they raised a, a few vegetables, but mainly strawberries. Alvin has a train depot that helped build the city. They would bring rail cars of ice to Alvin and fill it full of strawberries. There's also a cannery at the depot, so they would make strawberry preserves and fig preserves, and everything would be shipped north. So we did that until 1936 when my great-grandfather bought this farm. And so it's on the other side of Alvin. So we're really, we're well over 100 years old, but 87 years at this farm. And my great-grandfather wasn't just a strawberry farmer, but he was also a pig farmer. And so he raised Duroc hogs as well as uh, raised strawberries. 
Uh, during various times, as there were more or less growers in our area, he became a nursery and would raise strawberry plants for all the farmers. And then this crazy thing happened in 1942 called World War II. And with the draft, he lost all of his labor. So with a full crop in the field, about 18 acres of strawberries, which was being worked with a mule and a plow. So that was a lot of strawberries for them. Uh, he took an ad out in the Houston Chronicle that said, come out and pick your own strawberries. And so the next day, people filled the field and we've been doing you pick strawberries ever since, since World War II. Oh my gosh. I just got the chills, you guys. That is the coolest story, <laughs> just based on the the sure fact of the innovation. Like, here in the draft, you have no labor. You have a full crop in the ground. How are you going to get it out of the ground? And that is how you guys have now such a strong ag tourism component of your operation is all because of his decision to take an ad out in the Houston paper and have people come pick their own strawberries. Absolutely. Uh, you know, People always ask, how did y'all get into agritourism? And the simple fact is in 1942, there was a labor shortage. <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay. Well, I am so jacked right now for this conversation because if that's how we started it in the first five <laughs> minutes, it's only going to go up from here. So now that I know that the ag tourism aspect, how has that really grown and evolved over the years? Because obviously 1942 is a whole lot different than 2023. Absolutely. And so for a long time, it looked the same. And so we were what most people would call a truck farm, at least in our area where we had a roadside stand. We sold a little bit to the train depot, to the wholesalers, uh, but we also had our retail component. And so that was for a good 50 years. Uh, my great grandfather and my grandfather and my uncle all did you pick strawberries and raise produce to sell here at the roadside stand and sell, um, to wholesale markets. And then, you know, in the late nineties, Times got really hard for small fruit and vegetable farms, as they did for a lot of family farms, but especially small fruit and vegetable farms like ours. And so my uncle made the decision to really, really become innovative. And he built in 2002 a retail location on farm. And when I say retail location, I'm talking four walls, a roof, and air conditioning, like a small grocery store. And we started bringing in other products, not just grown on the farm. Uh, whether it be produce or, you know, even regular grocery items like bread and flour and things like that. And then introduced the UPIC blackberries. That would ride for about 10 years and then introduced the very first activity, which were duck races. It's like a little rubber duck in a pipe and you pump water, which was an additional thing for the kids to do. He realized that families were our bread and butter. That was our, our target audience or, you know, people with uh, small children. And so it, it just grew from there. Today, you have a various number of activities like you could shoot an apple out of an air cannon, you can take a tractor ride, we have various little, you know, we, we unhook our plows and planters and hook up wagons. You can run through the corn maze, you can pick strawberries or blackberries or sunflowers or zinnias. We have a full commercial bakery and cannery, all uh, open for the public to see how we do everything. We have a smokehouse, and then we still raise about 250 acres of produce. Holy cow. So there is something for you guys all season long. Every week of the year, 
there's probably an activity because you guys then going from corn maze to Christmas trees. Exactly. And so while we do have a few what we call prep weeks or down weeks throughout this throughout the year, our goal is to have boots on the ground 12 months out of the year because that's what pays the bills. We're proud to say that November of 2023, if you're listening right now, it is November of 2023 and we wholesale zero pounds of produce or any other agriculture product to any markets. We retail a hundred percent of the things that we raise. Wow. That is so impressive. So then how long, how long have you guys been solely retail and have not had those wholesale contracts? And so that has been since COVID. Uh, lots of people in our line of agriculture understand how COVID positively impacted our businesses. And we were no, you know, we were no different. Our business was already set up to handle the increased flow of that retail demand. And so instead of, you know, shying away from it, we made the necessary adjustments and went to a hundred percent retail. Okay. I, my mind is blown right now, which I'm so excited. So let's talk about the marketing aspect of this, because I know that a lot of family businesses, like you said, especially farms and ranches, obviously direct to consumer is becoming more and more of a thing, not just for mm -hmm. the farmers and ranchers, but also a lot of consumers want that as well. And if you're a consumer, wherever you get your stuff is great. I'm not, I'm not dogging anybody, but I love Absolutely. just being able to, to give more like connection and, you know, knowledge and really just bridging the gap between, you know, farm to plate. So when it comes to all of, of the variety of what you guys do, because you have the corn maze, you have a Christmas trees, you have school field trips and groups and organizations that come out. How did your family really start marketing to those various audiences and building a reputation for being a place where people can come connect with our local farmer? So it really helped that we've had a retail, at least farm, maybe not 100% retail, but we've had that direct-to-consumer component since the 40s. And so that helped because as that retail component grew, everyone was already used to coming and, and shopping with us. So our customer base grew with it organically. Again, we're talking about an 87-year timeline here. We're not talking about overnight. We're talking about an 87-year timeline of building a reputation and um, people having brand recognition in our area. Now, obviously, you know, as we grow our business, we do need to bring in more customers. So what does marketing look like for us today? A lot of it does happen organically. That is one really, really nice thing when your targeted audience is families with small children. It's very easy to grow organically when that's your target audience. But we utilize social media and a lot of it because it is, it's not free. We hear that term a lot. Well, it's free to do. Well, it's not because somebody has to do it. But oftentimes it, it can be a very cheap way to market your direct to consumer business. And so we do that and, and social media. Organic marketing and social media marketing is the only marketing that we do. Wow, that is so impressive. Okay, so let's, because you guys have done this for so long, and we know you're not 87 years old, but let's, let's walk back, <laughs> right? So if somebody is wanting to create 
an ag tourism element to their operation. And I'm thinking specifically those who are already doing some direct to consumer sales, let's say. What is some advice that you would give them of what they should consider or where they should start? Because again, as our, as time goes on and as we move forward, we're consistently going to have a population that is a little more disconnected from farming and ranching. And so this is a really great opportunity to get people on the farm, on the ranch to connect them, you know, with that local farmer rancher or, you know, group of farmers and ranchers. It doesn't just have to be you yourself, but what's some advice that you would give or ideas of where somebody should start? So I'm going to, I'm going to take this in two directions. The first direction is like boots on the ground, hands on. And the second direction is more philosophical. And so the first like bit of advice that you need to like physically do with your bare hands is the very first thing you should build is your parking lot. Because if you don't have a place for people to park, then there's no point in even starting all this. We, we are proud to say we ran a hundred thousand people through our fall agritourism component, but that, that is approximately 25,000 cars. And if you don't have somewhere for those people to park, you're going to be in a world of hurt. <laughs> 25,000 cars this fall alone? This fall alone. And so that's over a six-week time period for, uh, you know, open from 10 to 12 hours each day. And so the next, the next thing is from a more of a philosophical component. And so what are you already doing? In agriculture, what type of farming and ranching are you already doing? For for us, obviously, it was diversified fruits and vegetables, which we're still very much involved in. And so, how can you build an agritourism component that complements what you already know how to do? You know, it wouldn't have made sense for us to say, "Let's build a demonstration dairy parlor." We don't know anything about dairy cows. <laughs> what it does make sense for us to do, we already knew how to farm strawberries. And so we are just saving on labor costs, at least harvesting costs, right? We already know how to farm blackberries. Christmas trees were a learning curve, but you know, we, we are in the horticultural realm. So it wasn't that far fetched. And so like complement your skill sets first before you start branching off and learning how to, how to either raise or grow new things. Complement the skill sets you already have. I think that that is such great advice and especially, and I don't know when you guys started Christmas trees and I should probably ask this before just making the assumption, but you had the you pick strawberries and the blackberries and all the things you already did. And then you probably realized, okay, we have this gap in these months. What could we fill that gap with that we feel confident that we could learn? Absolutely. So my family actually grew Christmas trees in the 90s. Again, times were hard in the 90s for small fruit and vegetable farmers. And there was this great idea, let's grow Christmas trees. We'll all sit, you know, the whole family will sit out there. We'll cut the tree down with an ax. It'll be great. And ultimately, it was kind of a failure. There hadn't been a whole lot of research in Texas-grown Christmas trees at the time. The varieties weren't all that spectacular. And so that sliver of the operation was dissolved. And that ground is now used for blackberries. Uh, but then about five years ago or about six years ago, there started to be little flutters in North Texas about, Oh, we're raising some different cypress trees and all these other varieties of conifers that can be grown in Texas as Christmas trees. 
So with our ear to the ground, as it always should be, we listened to that and we, uh, we planted about a hundred of these trees and just practiced growing them. Now they take four years to grow, but after the first year, we kind of realized, okay, this is it. This is it. So then we planted about 2,500 of them. And so again, with anything like that, there's a learning curve, but we're now into our third year of having actively a pick your own Christmas tree farm. And we, we love it. The Christmas trees are that we like the Christmas trees for several reasons. One is who doesn't love Christmas? I mean, because this is the best time of the year. It's very pleasant in Texas. And traditionally, what was a slower time is now like that void is, is filled. We, we don't need to add another component during our strawberry season. We've, uh, we're, we're the largest strawberry farm in Texas. We don't need to occupy that time with something else during strawberry season. We need to occupy time during our non-busy times. And that's, that was the goal for the Christmas trees. Awesome. Okay. So let's go back real quick to the corn maze and how you, obviously we have these, you pick strawberries, you pick blackberries, we have a corn maze and we have activities for kids. Let's talk about why the activity aspect was really important and then how I'm assuming with Christmas trees, are there some activities there as well, or is it solely just the you pick Christmas trees? Yeah, that's a good question. And I want to preface this by saying like the Christmas trees takes up about, let's say 80 acres, right? The rest of like the festivals, if you will, it only takes up about 15 acres of our ground. And so it's so interesting that such a high percentage of our, of our yearly revenue comes from only about 10% of our farm. <laughs> and that, you know, anybody listening who's considering it, it's just, it's interesting to look at that when we start looking at, you know, your yearly revenue per acre, this 15 acres here at the main part of the farm its revenue is way higher than the other 200 plus acres of produce, you know, but we love farming and we always like to joke around that agritourism supports our farming habit. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So with the Christmas tree farm, it's something we're building, right? This is only, we've only been actively open for a couple of years on it. So it's something we're building up. And so we already have the commercial bakery and cannery on farm. And so that complements all of our agritourism aspects. Anytime there's boots on the ground. So cinnamon rolls and um, all the jellies and jams and fresh baked pies. We do it all in house and that is available at our Christmas tree farm. We also have a tractor ride that'll take you around the farm. And you know, there's always an educational component tied into it because people like to see that. And then we have a Christmas gift shop. You know, shirts with our logos on it, hats with our logos on it. Them buying an ornament or a shirt or a hat is that constant reminder to them. Oh, we need to go back during strawberry season. Oh, we need to go back during blackberry season. Oh, we need to go back for the watermelon festival and the corn maze and Christmas trees again next year. I wish you guys could see my face right now because I'm pretty sure that I have had a permanent like shock face and like smile This is, oh, this is the best conversation. I am just like, I wish you guys could see me right now because I am so jacked about this. Okay. So you mentioned that every, every aspect has some kind of educational component. What trends have you seen with consumers and what they're interested in and they really want to like learn more about? The first thing is, is of course, looking at our target audience, which is families with small children. There's not as much concern that we see as there is just an interest and a desire of that introduction. You know, most of our customers are three to four generations off the farm. 
And so, um, you know, a lot of the parents that are coming, they grew up going to their grandparents' farm during the summer. And so they're three to four generations. Their, their kids have never gotten that experience. And so, you know, oftentimes when we see agritourism operations, they're not always working farms. And so we provide a unique opportunity that we are still a working farm and they're able to buy those products right here. Now, are there concerns out there when people come? Of course, we get the GMO question. We get the organic versus um, synthetic or conventional question. And those are all questions that we're happy to answer. We're not certified organic. We very much use uh, synthetic products here at the farm. And so that those are conversations that we're prepared for. We've been doing this a long time. I myself have a degree in fruit and vegetable production from Texas Tech. We, you know, these are conversations we're prepared to have. We understand the industry. We understand, uh, we understand their concerns too. And we have those answers ready for them. Okay. So this is the perfect segue into the next section of what I want to talk about here. And that is you as somebody who is a very successful advocate <laughs> I don't for, know about the, that, but yeah. <laughs> for the industry. You do a really good job of making content fun easy to understand, and you never make people feel less than based on what they know or what they don't know. So, and I, again, I hate to make assumptions, but I'm going to in saying that the on the farm agritourism aspect gives you a front seat at people's questions and what they want to know about and probably only like continues to fuel that fire. But where did that initial love of connecting with others come from? So I was, like many others in the ag industry, I was a proud, active FFA member in high school. And when I got out, I, I joined the Army after high school. Once I got out of the Army, I came home, worked on the farm and went to college and all that good stuff. And then one day I was like, I'm going to, I have a degree. I'm going to go be an ag teacher. So I left the farm for one year and I went and taught agriculture science. And I realized several things, and I, I won't go into all of them, but I'll tell you the big one. And that was, I loved seeing the light bulb moments on anyone's face, not just students, but parents, anybody's face, when you show them something that they had no idea about. And that could be, you know, a, a chicken egg 15 days into incubation. That could be the first time someone realizes that, you know, you can eat microgreens or or the way a fresh tomato tastes, or the way romaine is harvested and then packed to, to then make a transit halfway across the country. You know, there's so many shocking things that people really, really are interested in and want to learn. And I realized that as my year as an ag teacher. And so coming back to the farm, I had never even had like a personal Facebook page or anything like that. I sat down one day and I was like, I, I, I would watch a high school student have a light bulb moment in the classroom. And I felt like there must be an avenue to do the same thing on the internet, right? With all of these apps. And so obviously, as I explored it, I realized that there were plenty of other people doing that and doing a really, really good job of it. And so at first, like anyone else, that's disheartening because you're like, oh, there's already people doing it. But then you realize that one single individual with a cell phone can watch as many videos as they want. And so it doesn't matter if it's saturated or unsaturated. If you have a passion and you want to spread that word, you can start making content. Anybody can do it with a cell phone. And so that's exactly what I did. And 
here we are about two and a half years later. Well, you make such a good point there about, too, I think that when it comes to if you want to start your journey, let's say, as somebody who is a voice for agriculture, you're looking at the industry now and you're thinking, holy cow, this is oversaturated. Everybody does it. And there are a lot of people who do it really, really well. But we all connect differently with different types of people and what your learning style is or what your explanation style is. That may not connect with somebody, and it may connect with somebody who doesn't feel connected to anybody else who's already sharing that story. Absolutely. A hundred percent. And so after I created my first couple videos, and you have a few videos go well, and you're feeling really good, and you're jazzed about it, right? Because you're like, this is great. I love this stuff, and other people love it too. How great is that? Like, this is awesome. And so- then you start thinking like, how do we grow this? And while I realized that there were people super interested in fruit and vegetables, maybe not as excited about it as I am, but still pretty interested and willing to watch that there were techniques to grow your audience by honing your own content creation skills and getting better at putting out information. And so I did something that fruit and vegetable farmers hate. Because oftentimes we get like branched in to the gardening world and we're like, no, that's not what we're doing. But I saw the gardening world as an opportunity to communicate information through a common interest. And so I made this one video entitled, this is five gardening tips from a fruit and vegetable farmer. And it worked. And all of a sudden I was getting viewers who thought that they didn't have an interest in the ag industry, but they were following my page because they were gardening in their backyard. And then they would scroll and see a video about something else in the ag industry. And they would ask questions and become curious. And again, uh, one thing I do try not to do is be threatening or, or matter of fact. And, and I try to listen to everyone's opinion and understand their viewpoints. And it, it just created this, I don't know, this synergy of people who thought they didn't have an interest in the ag industry, but hopefully found an opportunity where they could ask questions and, and get an honest answer. Oh, this is the best conversation. I think I've said that like six times now, but I'm, I truly, truly mean it. Because again, you bring up such a great point about, I think so often people think that, well, if I'm going to be the voice of agriculture... I need to go get in front of people who absolutely hate what it is that we do. And I don't want to tell anybody that they're wrong because that's that's part of what I dislike about a lot of that is you don't necessarily need to go to the fringe to make a difference because you're likely not going to make a difference there. It's everybody else in the middle who doesn't necessarily have a, you know, they don't feel one way or the other about agriculture, but they're, they are unaware or they're very curious or they want to learn a little bit more. Those are the people to get in front of because that's who you have the opportunity to make the biggest impact and connection with. A hundred percent. And you know, you brought up earlier, and I think I had said it as well, that there are a lot of incredible content creators. And there are a lot of incredible content creators and agriculture advocates that are willing to take it on in a brunt force and tackle all of those really hard conversations. And it's just it just wasn't my personality. You know, I always like to say dairy farmers have it the worst. Out of all of us dairy farmers, those poor people, they have it the worst. And so what I try to do, just as an example for, for that situation, 
oftentimes I'll just post a story where I'm just pouring me a big old glass of cold whole milk and I just drink it and it's delicious. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, but no, really, I think that so often we get worried about like, oh, well, we're going to have a lot of hate or whatever it is. I can say in my journey online, I haven't had much of it. And I think a lot of that too is if you put out positivity, then that is what you get back. But if you want to go the route of being matter of fact and kind of aggressive, chances are you're going to get a lot more matter of factness and aggression back to you. So I think that that's a, for those of you who are listening and who are maybe thinking, man, I would like to be more active and I'd like to have a stronger voice, but I just feel a little bit unsure. That would be my personal advice there of just go in with a very positive, like happy go lucky attitude. Absolutely. You know, I've done collaborations with dairy farmers and made full videos about dairy and received no hate on it. I've made collaborations and done videos of our sprayers here on the farm, something that, you know, in most cases would trigger a comment section and receive no hate for it. It's about that, you know, that delivery. And again, there's a lot of really, really great informative content creators that that style of bluntness and directness works. And I've just chosen, hopefully, a more fun avenue. Well, and I mean, at the end of the day, it's the internet, right? You can't necessarily control who's going to see it in the outcome and and what you're going to get back. And if all somebody wants to do is pick a fight with me, I don't need that kind of negativity in my life. And I can set the boundary that I don't want that. But if it's somebody who has like a genuine question or a concern, then obviously you can answer that in the most respectful way possible. Or even if it's somebody who respectfully disagrees... You can have a great adult conversation and still, you know, and not have to be negative or nasty to one another. But again, there are people out there who are just looking for a fight. And if you want to engage, you can. And if you don't want to, then you don't have to. You absolutely don't have to. I don't think I've ever made like a response video to a comment about a negative comment. And then most of the time for me, I just leave them and I just move on, you know, there, I don't think there's very few people who receive no hate whatsoever. I obviously get some comments. I just, it's, it's fine. We're living our best lives over here. So it's okay. <laughs> I love it. But again, like for those of you who are listening, I hope that you are encouraged that you have the power to, to go about it however you want to. But let's talk about your favorite platform because you have a super successful platform on Instagram, YouTube. I'm not on TikTok, but I imagine that you are, and it's probably wildly successful over there. So do you have a favorite platform or community that you like to connect with and why? They're all my favorites. And it sounds weird. And that is because I think people think that if someone follows you on one platform, then they obviously must follow you on all the other platforms. But like you said, you don't even have TikTok. And so I think as people start to grow their audiences on different platforms, they're going to be very, very surprised about how I'm going to throw a number out there and say 85% of your following, that's the only platform they follow you on. And so the engagement and conversations and questions are so different on every platform and you're engaging with completely different people. And so honestly, they, they are all my favorite and they're all exciting. You know, part of the reason social media works is that little adrenaline boost when you get a like or a comment. We all know that. Some of us deny it or don't like to talk about it, but that is part of it. And it's why we, it's not the only reason, but it's part of the reason why we enjoy it. And so, you know, when you have a video, 
doing really well on this platform. Oh, you really like that platform. And then you have a video doing a whole different video doing well on this platform. And, and it becomes like individual uh, tasks on the farm, right? You know, this month your YouTube's not doing well. So you start working really hard on that and it starts growing. So now your Instagram's not doing well. So now you're putting more effort into that. And I, it's just, it's fun. I, I don't know. It's fun. I really do enjoy them all. I enjoy the conversations. I enjoy the challenges that are presented with creating content. And I, and I'm proud of all of them. You know, when I first, I always say as a content creator, you're going to go through the timeline of what it's like as you grow. And so when you first start out, nobody says anything. And then some of your videos start doing well and people will say, Oh, you're still doing that little video thing on online. And you're like, yeah. And then you like, you land your first, like being a guest speaker or, or big collaboration. And people will start like, Oh, you know, or people start showing up to the farm. If you're a direct to consumer business, people start going, coming, showing up to the farm because they saw your video. And, and it starts just to become so much fun and you get to meet people. And I just, you know, there's, there's a lot going on in this old world. And, and I know that not everybody uses social media the correct way, but if you choose to use it the right way, it can be so rewarding and so much fun. And you get to meet so many people and engage with so many people. Okay. I'm a big nerd when it comes to strategy. So I'm going to throw you a question that I didn't give <laughs> you beforehand. So let's see how this goes. I have no doubts you're going to be able to answer this, but can you give us a strategy that you use on YouTube? A strategy that you use on Instagram, strategy that you use on TikTok, what other platforms are out there, but like a strategy for each platform. Because again, what you just said is every platform is different as far as how you're connecting with people and your your audience or your community is a little bit different for each one too. So what's a strategy for each platform? Okay. So I'm about to catch a lot of hate from the agcom majors out there. And all the marketing companies, I'm about to catch so much hate. I am so sorry for your comment section on this one. There are no strategies. <laughs> the, there's only one strategy. There's only one strategy on every platform. And that is create good content. That's oh. the strategy. Perfect. Okay. So what is good content? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So no, so I don't mean to get on a soapbox, but like, you know, this is the most common question I get. Like, what can I do to go viral? What can I do to do this? So, and I'm like, look, if you think that your hashtag game is going to change your, your views, if you think that trending sounds or doing all of this, look, it's make good content. There are keys to making good content. Oftentimes it's speaking about something that you are knowledgeable about or that you're familiar with. It's having fun and authenticity, right? You can't try to be someone else. You have to be authentic in yourself. And for me, I think not having social media prior to automatically going in and creating content was helpful because I didn't, I didn't allow anyone to like influence my content creation choices. And so that authenticity hopefully rings out to my viewers, but that's what it truly is. You know, people build their entire platforms on giving people strategies. And while I think that's great and there probably is some value in it, I think people need to turn those channels off. And I think they truly need to focus on what they want their content to be and put a lot of really hard work into creating the content. Just like anything else in life, when we encounter something hard, we find excuses on the outside that don't really influence this decision to like make us feel better. Like, oh, it was my hashtags of that. That's why that video did go. Or I didn't post at the right time of day. 
And I'm not saying that that stuff has nothing to do with your content. What I am saying is, if you want to do this and you want to be successful at it, and I'm not saying that I'm successful at it, but if you wanted to work a little bit, the first step is just making content that is authentic to you. That That's what it is. Oh, those are such wise words, Tyler. I love it. I love it. And you're not catching any hate don't, around here. Don't I think come that, me in the comment section. No. Don't, I mean, that's <laughs> honestly like, and yeah, there's little strategies like you want a, a horizontal video on YouTube and not a vertical video, like things like that. But I mean, yeah, you, you can, sure. those are easy enough to find at the end of the day, Correct. good content performs and crappy content does not perform. A hundred percent. If you if you post a really good video with no hashtags and no trending sound and not filmed the right way, and then you post a really bad video with all of those things, the good video is still going to do good and the bad video is still going to do bad. It's just the fact of it. <laughs> no, there is no doubt about that. Okay, let's get into our rapid fire round. What is the best piece of yes. business or personal advice that you've ever been given? Ooh, When you encounter a problem, find a profitable solution. And so in 1942, my grand, my great grandfather had a lack of labor. He very well could have just burned the field and called it a day. But instead, he found a solution that actually ended up making him money. And so if you're a cattle rancher and you have dirty water, invest in freshwater clams because you can sell those to restaurants and they'll clean your water, right? Instead of just putting in a pump that filters your water because that costs money. The other solution is profitable. You know, if you are raising fig trees, you have to prune your figs anyways, propagate new fig trees and sell those to nurseries. Find solutions that are profitable. Don't create solutions that cost you money. That might be like the mic drop moment of this whole episode. Oh, holy cow. That was so good. Okay. If you could give people any words of wisdom and you knew that they would take them to heart, what would it be? Share your story. We we get caught up that like we're not interesting. People People don't want to listen to what we have to say. But if you're being authentic, I think you should share your story. I think digital footprints are something that are going to be more and more important as the days go on. I think digital footprints can be inherited by our children one day. And so share your story and start to build your platforms. If you could go to dinner with anybody dead or alive, who would you pick? Oh, Billy Joe Schaefer. He's a Texas country singer songwriter. He wrote almost all of the outlaw country songs in the seventies. He unfortunately passed two years ago, but I read his autobiography a couple of years ago. And that is a man that has lived through more in one lifetime than most people could in four or five generations. And, uh, yeah, just to have five minutes, even just five minutes with him, that would be awesome. Oh, well, for those of you who are now intrigued and want to read the autobiography, I will make sure that we link to that in the show notes too. So it's easy for you to go find. What is a quote that you lead your life by? That is a good one. I want this to be authentic as possible. I know you sent me, sent me these questions ahead of time and I might've peeked at them, but I like everything to flow and be like real. It's how I do my content. <laughs> so, and I don't know who said this. I'm sure somebody did. But if you can dream it, you can achieve it. And that sounds like super cliche and like should be on a poster board, right? But like, here's what I mean by that. When I was graduating high school, I knew that I wanted to go to college, but I knew that we were poor vegetable farmers. 
And so that wasn't going to happen if I just sat around and did nothing. So I had this dream of going to college. And so instead of just writing that off and saying, well, we're poor vegetable farmers, so I don't get to do that. I joined the United States military and got my college paid for through that. And there's always a solution. And so if you have a goal, if you have a dream, you truly can accomplish it no matter how big or small. You just have to be willing to work at it because nothing's going to be handed to you. Holy cow. That was good. You say that to everybody. No, I really don't. I really don't. (laughs) Okay. Last question. Let's talk about your favorite things. Do you have a favorite book, podcast, like a product or a life hack that you want to share? Something that has maybe changed your life in some way that not enough of the world knows about? So I'm just like I did at the very beginning with someone, the advice, if someone wants to give or start an agritourism operation, I'm going to go real life like you can do it and then philosophical. And so uh, real life, I've been stuck on the Pastured Pig podcast. And that's such like a nerdy thing to say. It's not even like a super large podcast, but it's a guy and his name has escaped me. But all he talks about is raising pigs on pasture. And like most people don't even realize that pigs will graze. And so like it is, I really like taking things that I don't know a whole lot about and learning everything that I can about them. And so that is just a a realm of the ag industry that I don't know about. And for the last six weeks, if I'm not speaking to someone face to face, I have headphones in and I'm listening to this podcast and I'm not like, I'm not trying to like throw free advertisement for this dude's podcast, but like I've been stuck on it. If you'd asked me six weeks ago, it probably would have been true crime, right? Like, (laughs) what can I say? Uh, And then the more philosophical version is if you don't have one, go get yourself a best friend. It could be your spouse. It could be someone you work with. If you don't have someone that you get to have daily conversations with, whether it's about politics or religion or just how you're doing, or your struggles, or your highlights. Everyone should have a best friend that they share stuff with, so go get you one if you don't have one. Oh, well, that is the perfect way to round out this episode. But Tyler, we talked about Froberg's Farm. We talked about you and your overwhelming social presence. If people are not following you online, where can they find you? So they can find me at farmer.froberg on all platforms. And then if you want to see what we're doing at the farm too, more like hyper local updates for the farm, check out at Froberg's farm. Oh, perfect. Okay. Well, if I'm ever in Alvin, Texas, I know exactly where I'm stopping in. I'm going to spend my day. But Tyler, thank you so much. This has been such an awesome episode. You dropped so many wisdom nuggets in this thing that, holy cow, I am bursting at the seams right now. But thank you so much for taking the time to share your insight and your knowledge with us. This has been awesome. And I know that everybody who has listened to this up until now is going to have loved it just as much as I did today as we record it. So thank you so much, Tyler. Thank you for having me. If you loved this episode, do us a favor and share it with someone else who might find just as much value in it as you did. We're on a mission to continue to grow and strengthen the future of agriculture and Western industries, and you spreading the word helps us make more of a positive impact. It also makes a big difference when you take a minute to go rate and review the show. We can't thank you enough for listening, for sharing, and for loving Ag and Western as much as we do. We'll see you back here for our next episode.